You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see God's good vision for the world, creation in harmony with humanity, and humanity in harmony with God. Join us for our series, Sacred, Genesis 1 and 2. Today's scripture comes from Genesis 1, 31 through 2, 4. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth, sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. If you're visiting with us today, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to thank you for joining us. We know you could be anywhere this morning, and we're glad that you're here with us. Before we get into this morning's message, would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the gift of gathering, for the chance to open your word together to be reminded of things we've forgotten, to be re-centered, or maybe we're off kilter in life. We come in with a lot of things on our mind, a lot of things on our hearts. Some of us have had wonderful weeks, some of us have had really hard weeks, and we know that you meet us where we are, but you also, you give us your word, you've given us your spirit, and you are calling us to be a people who live more fully into reality as it truly is which is your kingdom. And so I pray, as we look at your word this morning, your spirit would convict us where we need it. You'd you'd give us uh, hearts that are open to hear and to consider, to receive hearts that are willing to repent and rethink. And also, Lord, I pray that you would, more than anything, encourage us as we are reminded once again of who you are, of how good you are, and of your desires for us. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I think there are a few things in life that are probably more embarrassing, at least that I've experienced. There's a few, but there are a few things more embarrassing in life than running out of gas. Has anyone ever had this happen to them? Or you've either had to make the call or you've ever gotten the call. And it's always such an awkward kind of embarrassing conversation because inevitably people will ask, well, does your fuel gauge work? Was like the needle on E? Yeah. Was the, you know, the light on? Yeah, it was on. And you ran out of gas. Yeah, I just, you know, I was busy and I didn't feel like, I just thought I could get away with it. You know, years ago I learned that in Europe, the way they design cars in Europe when your fuel light comes, your low fuel light comes on, that means you got about three miles. So if you're not at a gas station when that light comes on, you're in real trouble. Here in America, it's more like 40 or 50 miles because the car manufacturers know that we as Americans, we just like to push things. And now they've, they've actually created, you know, most of you probably have it or you've seen it, the, the range like display of how many miles you can get until empty, and I can tell you even that's inaccurate. Don't ask me how I know, but that hits zero. You don't have to believe that. You can make it a ways. But 
there's something about Americans. I think it's something that makes America great and makes Americans great. And it's something that makes us really, really unhealthy, that we like to, to push things. And we push in good areas and innovation and in hard work, but we also push, push ourselves in other areas that aren't so good. We push our money to the limits. You know, we spend, generally speaking, every penny we make, and then we turn to credit card. The average credit card debt in America is $6,000, which is just crazy to think about. Most people living with that, carrying that around. We push our schedules to the limit. We fill every waking moment. We work too much. There's little to no margin. If you ask anyone how they're doing, usually within seven or eight words, you're going to hear the word busy or tired. Good, busy. Good, tired. Things are pretty good. I'm worn out. We're always in a hurry, you know, like the Alabama song, like we're in a hurry to get things done. You guys remember that song? Maybe not. Um, when you, you think about just all of the little ways that plays out, you go to the grocery store and you, you choose your line. How do you choose your line? You're, you're kind of looking to see like whose cart has more stuff, who's going to put it on there faster, who might still be living in, you know... <laughs> in the dark ages and actually get out a check and write a check. Have you had anyone do that to you in the last couple of years? You're like, what are you doing? Like, there's better ways and easier ways because we're in a hurry and we don't want to wait. We do this when we pull up to, to traffic lights and we're analyzing the cars and who's driving them. Who's probably going to take the longest to get away from when the light turns green? We push our bodies to the limits. We're exhausted we're overworked, we're tired and fatigued, but we're stressed and so our mind's racing. I mean, do you, you've ever considered, like many Americans, and I'm not shaming you if this is you, but many Americans, they have trouble falling asleep at night, so they have to take a pill to fall asleep at night, and then they have trouble getting up in the morning, and so they drink five-hour energy or four cups of coffee to get going. Again, I'm not shaming you if that's you, but that should cause us to say, what's going on here? Like when it's late and dark and it should be easy to fall asleep, I can't fall asleep. But then when the sun comes up and it's morning and the day's ahead of me, I don't have any energy. When we push ourselves to the max, overschedule, overspend, overeat, and we're overwhelmed. And we kind of live at this and we've lived in it so long that I, I think for a lot of us it just feels normal. But it's not. We're in a series we've entitled Sacred. We're looking at Genesis chapters 1 and 2, looking at some of the foundational truths, not just of the Christian faith, but of reality. Because we're looking at how God created the world. And so we've, we've explored a number of things, but today we come to the end of the creation account. Last week we saw on day 6, which seems like the end of the creation account, God creates humanity, the crown of his creation. And you think that would be the end of the story, but then there's a seventh day. And what's fascinating, and it would be so fascinating if we weren't so familiar with it, is that on this seventh day, after creating, the God of the universe does nothing. He stops. He rests. He doesn't create any material things. He, he rests from his labor. And in doing so, he establishes this rhythm 
that's really woven into the fabric of the universe of creation, this rhythm of working and resting. And so today we're going to look at that, and we're going to look at it under the, the title of Sabbath. That word might have some baggage with you, so if it does for you, uh, just think rhythm. But we're going to look at the pattern we see here in Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to look at what it means to practice, to actually engage with this rhythm. And then lastly, we're going to talk about the power of it and the power to do it. So the, the pattern, the practice, and the power. Starting with the pattern, Lindsay just read it, but I want to read it again. That at the end of the sixth day, Genesis 1:31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. That's the end of chapter 1, and you think it's the end of creation account? And then we read in chapter 2, verse 1. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day... He rested from all his work. It's so interesting. You know, God, God's all-powerful. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't get grouchy. He doesn't get worn down. He's never in danger of burning out, like I've just been doing too much. I need to slow down a little bit. That's not who our God is. And yet we're told that on the seventh day, he rested from his work. And this has challenged theologians and Christians and Jews throughout the centuries. What does it mean that he rested from his work? The word translated rest there, it's a word that could also be translated as just ceasing or stopping. And it's, when you keep this in the context of Genesis 1, you know, again, another thing I think that's really stuck out to me this time through reading this is how after each act of creation, God stops and considers. He doesn't, he doesn't just move on to the next thing. It's not the checklist of like, all right, I did this, 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 what do I have left? No, no, no. It's like he, he does one of the things and then he steps back and he's like, I like it. Create something else. I like that too. So he's not rushed or hurried. And after each thing he creates, he says good. And then he creates humanity and he says very good. And that's the day, day six, day seven, he stops and he steps back. In Exodus 31, it says that God was refreshed on the seventh day. And that refreshment, it's not because he was tired. It's because God is stepping back, taking in all of his creation and actually just enjoying it for a moment, delighting in it celebrating it. Think of it if you were working in your yard, if you enjoy that, if you enjoy cutting the grass. I, I don't know, that's like peak middle age, I guess. I look forward to cutting the grass and I look forward afterwards to sitting on the deck and just looking at the freshly cut lawn. I just take great enjoyment in that these days. And you probably have things like that. Maybe it's cleaning your house and you stop and you just enjoy. You just sit there and you're like, Oh, it's so nice. Or you do landscaping or, you know, you weed the landscaping. Whatever it is, you stop, you step back, and you just enjoy it. And what Genesis is telling us is that was actually, that enjoyment, it wasn't in addition to the work God did. It was actually the completion and the fulfillment of it. That the grass isn't actually cut until you actually sit on the deck and enjoy what it looks like and enjoy the smell and the weather. Verse 3, 
we're told that as God is stepping back and enjoying this day of creation, that God blesses the seventh day. So let's just pause there for a second. Think about that for a minute. God blesses a day. He blesses a period of time. Up until now, God has only blessed two things. He blessed animals, and then he blessed human beings. And both times in Genesis, when we're told when he blessed the animals, he blessed them and told them to be fruitful and multiply. And then he blessed humans and told them to be fruitful and multiply. That the blessing that God gives is a blessing that gives life. And here God blesses the seventh day, a day to give life. And it gets even stranger because then we're told that God made that day holy. First time that word appears in the Bible is about this day, this period of time that it's set apart. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And what the author of Genesis is pointing to is something that's evident to us all, that, that there are rhythms woven into the fabric of creation. There's a rhythm of day and night. There's the rhythm of seasons, of, you know, spring, as things start uh, blooming, and then summer, the warmth, and then the fall, when the leaves start falling, and then winter and cold, and then you come back to spring. There's the, the rhythm of tides that come in and go out, the rhythm of the moon. So too, hardwired into creation is a rhythm of work and rest. And this rhythm that initiated with God soon became the framework for human work and rest. And part of what it means for us to bear God's image is that we embrace and live into this rhythm of working and resting. If you fast forward, book of Exodus, God delivers his people from slavery in Egypt. They're wandering, making their way to the promised land, which interestingly at times is called the, the, the land of rest. As they're on their way there, they're you know, they get hungry and they start grumbling against God and just keep it short, but he provides manna and quail for them in the wilderness. He says, I'm going to take care of you. He said, every day you're going to get up, you're going to gather some manna, this, you know, amazing kind of bread, but only get, grab enough for one day. If you try to keep it for more than one day, it's going to go rotten. But on the sixth day, he said, I want you to grab twice as much so that on the seventh day, you don't even have to work. You don't even have to go out. And we're told in verse 27 of Exodus 16 that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Some of them said, we don't want to, no, no, no. We're going to do it. I'm a hardworking individual. I take, I've got a Protestant work ethic. I'm going to get out there. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? And this next line, I think, is so crucial. Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Don't miss that phrase. He doesn't say the Lord has demanded you obey. He says the Lord has given you this. It's a gift. Exodus 20, God formalizes this command in the Ten Commandments. It's the fourth command, and theologians look at, if you actually look at the Ten Commandments, the first three are all about us and our relationship with God. Uh, the last 
six are us and, about us and our relationship with one another. And then in the middle, you have what's by far, if you want to do a word count, the longest command, the command of the Sabbath, which bridges the two, where God tells his people, I've delivered you from slavery. I love you. Here's what life flourishing under my leadership looks like. And he says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, not, not only you, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day, and here we read it again. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and made it holy. He's saying, you are my chosen people. When you lived in Egypt for centuries, you had to work nonstop. You had no choice. You had to work under cruel and harsh treatment. But you're my people, and I've rescued you. And as my people, you're going to live differently than the Egyptians did. You're going to live in this rhythm of working but also resting. And if you continue on in Exodus and beyond, God actually builds out this pattern of working and resting that not only is it one day a week, but one year out of every seven years, you were required to, to not work your land, to let your land rest. And then every seven one of those, so every 49 years was the year of Jubilee. And on that day, that year, slaves were set free, debts were forgiven, and all work was to cease for an entire year among God's people. You know, a few years back, we preached through Leviticus, uh, not the whole thing, but parts of it, and which isn't a book that you necessarily think, man, I want to be refreshed. I'm going to go read Leviticus. But in some ways it was, because when you read it, you realize that God built in all of these different festivals and parties for his people again and again throughout the year of saying, you're going you're gonna to stop. You're going to lay your work down for a few days or a few weeks. You're going to rest. You're going to enjoy. You're going to delight. You're going to celebrate. You're going to worship. This rhythm of working and resting, it's woven throughout the life, not just creation, but the life of God's people in the Old Testament. And it was a gift. But what happened and what often happens is this gift, quickly, God gave it, and then there was, there was a lot of anxiety about it. Like, what do we do, and what are we not allowed to do? What, well, what's, what's it mean to rest? What, we're not supposed to work. Well, what exactly is considered work? And people started to draw lines, and it became this source of anxiety and stress that weighed them down. By the time Jesus came, the religious leaders had established 1,521 things a person couldn't do on the Sabbath. This gift that God had given all of a sudden became a burden. It's like, yeah, I can do this, but I can't do this. I can carry one stick, but if I carry two sticks, I might go to hell. What am I supposed to do with all of this? Mark 2, the Pharisees are are irate with Jesus because word comes to them that Jesus and his disciples were walking through a field and they were plucking heads of grain and eating them on the Sabbath. Well, this fell under the 
one of the 1,521 things that you weren't allowed to do on Sabbath. This was basically harvesting. They're harvesting wheat on the Sabbath is what the Pharisees say. And Jesus responds to their charge, and this is such a word for us. He says, the Sabbath, because they're like, how would you let your people work on the Sabbath? He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus has two things here. One, he tramples on their legalistic man-made regulations about the Sabbath. But at the same time, he affirms the basic principle of it. And he reminds us of how we are to think of it. That this day, it's a gift. The Sabbath was made for man. It was a gift for man. Man wasn't created in order to follow the rules of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created to be a gift to humanity. This is crucial for us to understand because I preached about Sabbath many times during my tenure here, and questions always emerge. What day is it? Is it Saturday? Is it Sunday? Does it have to be a particular day? What am I allowed to do if I do this on the Sabbath? Am I breaking the Sabbath? Am I sinning against God? What if I have to work more? Some people, they can't take a day off every week, and some people have to work a little bit longer stretches. What then? Is God mad with me? Or even the question is, is this still binding as Christians? Do we still have to obey the Sabbath? And I'm not going to get into the whole debate. I'll just say that most theologians throughout the ages agree that Jesus transformed the Sabbath. That the way it existed back then of all of these rules of this thing that made everyone uptight and afraid. I mean, you read the Gospels. It seems like Jesus waited to do most of his miracles until the Sabbath just to kind of stick a finger in the guy's eyes. Like you're getting it wrong. Paul writes in Colossians 2, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. And so I want to be really clear. There's freedom here. I'm not saying if you work seven days in a row that you're in sin. But this freedom doesn't mean we should disregard the rhythm. The freedom that we have, the freedom that Jesus gives us, doesn't mean we should actually just kind of close our eyes to the pattern we see in Genesis 1 and 2 and the rest of the Bible, the pattern we actually saw Jesus embody, where he, he would break the religious leader's rules about the Sabbath, but he never broke a Sabbath. This rhythm of working and resting, it's been hardwired into creation. It's part of our cosmic reality And as someone once said, when you try to go against the grain of reality, you get splinters. And when we don't honor this rhythm of working and resting, our lives get thrown out of balance. Our minds get thrown out of balance. Our relationships get thrown out of balance. We suffer physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally. Sabbath is a gift. And the proper response to a gift from God is to receive it and to enjoy it. So that's the pattern. What about the practice? What does it actually look like to receive this gift and to put it into practice? Well, just to get this out of the way, six days you shall work and the seventh you shall rest. Part of the rhythm is you have to work. And we're going to preach on work and Weeks to come, my guess is for most of you, that's not the temptation. 
or maybe it is right now because you're 16, but soon enough, you're going to be like the rest of us who take pride in overworking. There's a rhythm. You've got to work. But a Sabbath, it's not just taking a day off. I think that's how a lot of people think about it. We think in the Bible that the Sabbath is a day off or it's a day to catch up on everything else or it's a day off from my job and now I'm going to do all of the work that I've neglected to do this week. I'm saved it all up for this day. Pardon my language, but Eugene Peterson called that a bastard Sabbath. It's like biblically, that's not a Sabbath. It's a day off and it's not bad. Sometimes you need those days. But a Sabbath is way more than just, I'm not going into work or I'm laying these particular activities down. Four components that we see in the scriptures of Sabbath. One, Sabbath means we stop. Just as God stopped, we stop. We stop working. We don't go into the office or the shop, the classroom. We lay down our work physically. We lay it down mentally. We do our best to lay it down, which is so hard because our work follows us everywhere in our pocket on our phone. Turn off your email. Turn off your phone. Sabbath is a day that just as God stopped, we stop. It's a day where we're reminded of our limits and our limitations. It's a day where we're reminded that we're actually creatures. We're not the creator. We're not indispensable. We're not in charge. When we actually stop and take our hands off our work for just even 24 hours, we're reminded that the world will go on without us, which maybe is terrifying for some of you to think about. Reminded that God's on the throne and he's ruling, we don't rule. It's a day to embrace our limits and just that whole sense of like, <laughs> I hear people talk about, I'm just trying to get ahead. I've never heard someone say, I finally did it. I got ahead. I've been trying for years and I finally got, now I am ahead for at least a year. No, it doesn't happen. And I think actually the stopping, what's terrifying for some of us is to stop is to realize, oh, I'm never going to get ahead. In the sense that there's always going to be projects that I want to do, I'm not going to do. Work that I'd love to see be done that I probably will never get around to things that, that are never going to be finished. A biblical Sabbath begins with saying, recognizing that and saying, but it's okay because I don't rule the world. God rules the world. Stop, lay it down. Number two, second part of the practice is that we rest. And this is the reason we stop working is so that we rest, so that like God, we can be refreshed and so we don't do things on the Sabbath that drain us or suck the life from us. And so if you're laying your work down, that doesn't mean you come home and you do all the things that you don't really enjoy there. Uh, but this is where I want to be really clear. There's a whole lot of freedom. I just talked about, I really enjoy cutting the grass. It's like a highlight of the week for me. I don't know why, I just do. To me, that's not a chore like, oh, this is horrible. I'm like, oh, it looks like it could be cut again. Um, and so there are things that you might enjoy that other people might not enjoy. 
But one of the ways you practice the Sabbath is you ask, what brings me life? You do that. What steals life from me and sucks the joy away from me? And you don't do those things. I mean, a simple, simple question. Will this activity refresh me? And if it will, have at it. Will this activity drain me? You probably shouldn't do it unless it's, you know, essential for the preservation of life, like changing a diaper or something like that. Like, that might not bring you life, but you might have some basic duties. Now, a lot of us, we think that's where Sabbath ends, but biblically, this is where we get into what's so beautiful about what God has given us. It is about stopping. It is about resting. But what did God do? What did he do on the first Sabbath? He stepped back and he enjoyed his creation. He delighted in it. And the third step, the third part of the practice is enjoyment or delight. That Sabbath is not, which a lot of us think this way, we tend to think of it in terms, in negative terms. Here's all the things I'm not going to do, I'm not allowed to do. And if that's the only way you think in it, then you got to have kind of the, the threat of the law to actually get you to do it. But Sabbath is about so much more than what we don't do. It's about what we get to do. It's about creating space for delight and for enjoyment, for life. Just as God created space and delighted in his creation, so too we delight. Sabbath is a day to enjoy the gifts that God's given you and the life that God has given you. A day where you're free to do the things that you love. I mean, what do you love? Is it going for a walk in the neighborhood, going for a hike in the woods? Maybe it's reading a novel or some poetry or writing a novel or poetry, painting, crafting, crocheting, playing basketball or golf. Again, some people here despise cooking, but maybe you love cooking. And maybe for you, like an amazing day is spending three hours preparing a meal that you just, you know, you put all of the effort in because you just so love great food. Maybe it's smoking a few racks of ribs and sitting on your back porch to keep that theme going. Like, what do you love? What do you enjoy? What brings you life? That's a good thing to do on the Sabbath. This requires some planning and some attention, some decision. Maybe it's taking your kids to a playground and grabbing ice cream afterwards, and doing it in an unhurried way. Too often, I won't confess my wife's sins, but I'll confess my own. It's like, we can go to the playground, but we, got, we can get there, and then we got to get home. No, I don't think we have time to go do anything else because we got way too much to do. And so it's like, you're going to go, and you're going to play and have fun for 20 minutes, and then we're out of here, which seems to, to erode the spirit of a playground. Tick-tock, three more slides, then we're gone. <laughs> Maybe if it rains, you watch The Princess Bride and just recite lines together as a family. It's a day to just enjoy your life. We stop, we rest, we enjoy, and then all of this culminates, and we worship. 
Sabbath is a day holy unto the Lord. And I save that one for the end because I think worship can have a very narrow definition in a lot of our minds, like what we do here on Sunday morning, and that's certainly part of it. But all of life is worship. All of life has the potential to be worship. And Sabbath is a day where we enjoy our lives and the gifts God's given us, ultimately as a form of delighting and enjoying, delighting in and enjoying our God. So we can do the things I just listed. Those aren't, don't have to be unspiritual acts, but we can also carve out some time to pray. And not just anxiety prayers, but if you actually have some space in your life, you say, you know what? How about I carve out 20 minutes and just talk to the Lord? Just, just kind of pour my heart out. I'm going to go for a walk in the woods, and I'm just going to talk to him for a little bit. You just let the stuff that emerges, that needs to emerge, emerge. Maybe for a lot of people, Sunday is a great day to take a Sabbath. You can go to church, worship, receive the songs and the word and the bread and the cup, and you just receive it. You don't have to come in and angle for things, but it's just a gift to be reminded Maybe you pick up a Bible or a devotional book, something that stirs your mind and heart towards him. Listen to music that stirs your affections. Be reminded that you are not God, and that's really good news for you and for everyone else. Sabbath is a day to stop working, to rest, to enjoy your life, and worship God. How's that sound? Uh, I mean, doesn't a day to a week, one day a week devoted exclusively to rest and refreshment, delight and worship, doesn't it sound wonderful? That's why today, you know, these days when someone says, do I have to observe the Sabbath? To me, that's kind of like asking, do you have to observe Christmas? I guess not. But don't you want to? And this is, like, it's right here. It's in the book. This isn't self-help. This isn't me saying, hey, I, here's a life hack for you. This is God telling us, woven into the fabric of creation from the beginning. As there's a rhythm where you work and then you rest. You labor and then you lay it down to enjoy and to delight. And so much of our health in life, I think, is tied to our ability or inability to embrace this rhythm in one form or another. And so that gets to the power. Think about how the power, the power this could have in your life, and then we'll talk about the power we need to actually do it. But the power it can have in your life. If you take this rhythm seriously, this won't just give you a weekly dose of refreshment. It will change your life. Think about it. One day a week, 52 days a year, 520 days, every decade over the course of a lifetime, this would amount to about 11 years of one's life devoted exclusively to stopping, resting, enjoying, and worshiping. Think of how different your life would be. Charles Duhigg, he wrote a book called uh, The Power of Habit. It's about 10 years old. Anyone read that book? It's an amazing book. Uh, I really encourage, especially as Christians, we want to practice spiritual disciplines and 
build healthy habits and get rid of unhealthy habits. That's a huge part of the Christian life. It's, it's a fascinating book. Uh, but Duhigg, he, he talks about, he, he just went on this endeavor. He said he had this problem that there were things that he wanted to stop doing that were so hard for him to stop doing. And so one of the things is when he'd be feeding his kids chicken nuggets, he would just eat one of them. Like every single time without even thinking about it. And then like while it's on its way down, he's like, what just happened? How did that happen? I made a decision 10 minutes ago. I wasn't going to eat any of these. And here it is. And he, so he explores like, why do we do what we do? And, and how can we change? What habits, why are some of the most important habits the hardest ones to adopt? Because really, when you think about it, when we talk about Sabbath, a rhythm of working and resting, we're talking about habit. We're talking about discipline, about practices. And so he, he developed this idea, then he did the research, what he calls keystone habits, that there are some habits that aren't all that significant. I mean, they might be important, like brushing your teeth, but it's not like if you start brushing your teeth, your life's going to change and other things are going to change as well. I mean, maybe, but probably not. But there are some habits, maybe bad habits you do away with or good habits that you adopt. That he, he said, we found that when people adopt these habits, it has a cascading effect in their life. And the most probably easy one for us to think about is exercise. If you've never really exercised, and you start exercising, they found that once that became a habit, it really changed all these different parts of people's lives. That people who never used to exercise and started exercising regularly, they actually, on the days they exercised, they spent, they used their credit card less. They changed what they ate. And it wasn't just out of guilt. It just, it was one of these kind of cascading effects. And what he said is these keystone habits what makes them so profound is they change how someone sees themselves. And so instead of just saying, I need to exercise, you start to say, I'm a person who exercises. And a person who exercises doesn't eat bacon double cheeseburgers with fries three days a week. You go to the grocery store, a person who exercises doesn't you know, buy three bags of chips. It just kind of changes how you think about yourself. I just wonder what the cascading effects would be if we learn to see ourselves as people who embrace this rhythm of work and rest and take it seriously. I'm a person who Sabbaths. I'm a person who is so committed to God and living in step with him that I willingly choose to set aside a day a week to rest, to enjoy him and the life he has given me. What would change in your life, your relationships, powerful, but it takes a lot of power to do it. I'm hoping that a lot of you are like, That's, this is intriguing. I think I would like to do that. I think I would like to build this in. I hope that's where you are. If it is, though, you got to think this is going to be hard work, akin to if you've never worked out, starting to exercise regularly. Because this gift, it's a hard one for, we, for us to receive. And I think the reason it's hard to receive is because, because we don't live into the freedom that Jesus has purchased for us nearly enough. And you're going to have to taste and feel and experience that freedom to actually engage in a practice like this. And this is where it's helpful to remember 
The Israelites, they are given the Sabbath command against the backdrop of slavery for hundreds of years. They were worked into the ground under oppressive taskmasters. And God, as he delivers them, he says, no more. And what's really interesting, at least if you're a Bible nerd like me, in Exodus 20, God gives the Sabbath command and he grounds it in creation. He says, you're going to rest because I rested on the seventh day. But then you go to Deuteronomy as Moses is recounting what it was like to get the Ten Commandments. Moses doesn't ground the Sabbath just in creation. Look at Deuteronomy 5. He says, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Remember you were slaves. And you used to not have a choice. And God flexed big time. And he brought you out. And he said, no more. You're not going to live like a slave anymore. You're going to live as my people. Which means, yes, you're going to work because you were created to work. And you're going to rest because you were created for rest. Anyone who can't rest from their work is a slave. I don't know what you're a slave to. It could be success or money, the materialistic culture. It could be uh, the voice inside your head that says that you're too important. You can't stop working. You can't step back. And don't, don't mishear me. Certainly there are busy times and unique seasons, but when unique seasons become life, that's a real problem. Maybe, though, it's that voice in your head that you're never satisfied with who you are or... You know, it's a cliche It's because it's true. You're, you're still trying to prove your mom or your dad wrong. The power of Sabbath, the power to Sabbath, it comes when we realize that in Christ we're no longer slaves and we've been set free. Dan Allender, he put it like this. He said, the Sabbath is routinely rejected because it is one of our most profound tastes of grace. We reject it, I think, because a lot of us, it just sounds way too good. Like, I would like to do that, but there's no way God would want me to do that. Because in our mind, God is still a taskmaster, not a father. Jesus, he says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you work. No. <laughs> I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Sabbath, it grounds us in the reality as believers that we're loved by God through the finished work of Jesus and that our, our identity is not defined by what we do. Our identity is a gift from him. And we have the promise, and I don't have time, but gosh, the promise that all of our Sabbaths here are a dress rehearsal for the day when Jesus returns and we enter into an eternal Sabbath of resting and enjoying and delighting even more. Think about the witness If we are a people 
It's like, man, they, yeah, they, they have a day every week, and they just go do fun stuff and enjoy their life. It's so strange. Your coworkers, your neighbors said that. And it would bear witness to the world that we worship a God that is not against us, but is for us, and we don't have to live as slaves to the frenetic pace of life, a better way of being in the world that honors God and his rhythm. So as we move to the Lord's table, as we're reminded of God's kindness to us, of the promise, of the foundation of the Christian life, that God's love for us is not contingent upon what we do, what we earn, what we achieve. It's a gift. Here's a chance for us to to open our hearts to God, maybe even ourselves to do some examination as we're reminded that Jesus Christ with his disciples, and then I was betrayed, took a loaf of bread and broke it and said, this is my body that's broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of my blood, the new, new everlasting covenant. It's poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In communion, it's another practice. It's another habit that we do every time we gather to remind ourselves that we are loved by God, not because of what we do, but what Christ has done. And our standing with God is ultimately a gift. It's not something we earn or achieve. And it's out of this that we do all of our working and our resting. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, I encourage you to take part in this and to be reminded that your God loves you, he provides for you, he cares for you, and he is inviting you to live more fully into the life that he has for you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in life with God that Jesus secured for us. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.